0: We're in Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We might want to turn this thing down a little bit because sometimes I shout, Stephen, and I feel like I'm going to blow that. I got a teacher voice that I use occasionally. This is a, you know, if if you're a Christian and you're here with us today, uh, which I would think the majority of you are, um, this is a very familiar passage. Uh, you, you've read it a number of times. You might even, like, when you're doing your normal Bible reading, when you get to this passage, you might just skim through this one because you're like, I've read this so many times, right? Um, the, the passage has often uh, been, been reduced to this um, sort of moralistic rant, um, be strong and courageous. Now, it's, it's repeated throughout the passage, be strong and courageous. I'm not denying that, but... Um, the, the, the moralistic ranting of a uh, demand for boldness and courage from Christians can become a little tiresome. Uh, and a lot of times when, when people talk about why they don't like the Bible or uh, why they can't stand being around Christians or why they feel judged in church uh, is because they interpret... Um, Our faith as merely a list of do's and don'ts, uh, a running list of ways you ought to uh, be like a a particular biblical character, um, a a particular list of ways that you are to behave in every type of situation. Um, And that becomes tiring, especially if you're not running on the fuel of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It becomes tiring to hear a constant list of moralistic commands. And what I want to suggest to you today is if you're struggling with that idea, and even as a Christian, if you're struggling with that idea, um, this text is not primarily telling us to be bold and courageous. It's not a text that's primarily telling us what to do. It's primarily a text that's telling us who God is and how he behaves on the earth. It's about what he's doing. And I I learned this personally. I mean, you can learn this doctrinally in in seminary. Uh, But I learned this personally shepherding a congregation of folks that are largely um, struggling with mental illness. Uh, When you tell someone who is facing uh, some sort of trauma in their lives, like PTSD or uh, any number of other things that have happened to them, when you insist that they just be bold and courageous in the face of that trauma, Uh, And you see the look on their faces and you realize uh, this ain't as simple as I thought it was. And so there must be more in this text. There must be more indeed in Scripture to help us understand how to do this. And so what's the more? How do we avoid putting an undue burden on ourselves? Especially those of us struggling with weakness and fear and possibly mental illness. How do we undo putting this, or how do we avoid putting this undue burden on ourselves when we realize that this is an impossible command? This can be an impossible command for you as you face down the challenges and the realities of your life. We realize that those of us who feel already bold and courageous will cheer when we read this passage. But those of us feeling weak and beat up And fearful will cower as the rest of us cheer. When we know, especially because of the work of Christ, that God's purposes are actually more to the point of humbling the bold and elevating the weak. So how do we work that out in this passage? Well, I want to suggest that in order to focus on God's character and see that everyone is rightly challenged, by God's character and purposes, we need to recognize that God is calling us to be bold and courageous because he's a God of promise, because he's a God of order, and because he's a God of presence. That's why he can command us to be bold and courageous. We're going to talk about those three things today. God is a God of promise, and God is a God of order, and God is a God of presence. So let's, let's talk about this idea of God being a God of promise in the context of this passage in Joshua 1. I don't know about you, but I appreciate it when people keep their promises to me. Uh, when, a, when, a, when a teenager that potentially lives in my home says he's going to be home at a certain time and he arrives at that time, often I'm shocked, but I'm also thankful that he kept his promise. I don't think it would take you long to realize how much you value promises made by others in your life. And so it's no surprise that with the eternal God, the creator of all things, that promises would be important to him, and that promises would play an important role in his relationship with his people. He makes promises that he intends to keep, and it's actually a promise that frames the whole narrative In Joshua chapter 1. Look at verse 3 with me. The Lord says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them in verse 6. So we recognize the importance of promises. We recognize that the foundation of everything that God is offering to Joshua here and everything that God is telling Joshua is his is founded on this promise that goes back to Moses who has just died. And so we see that promises are important to God. We know that promises are important to us. But we also know that there's a significant difference between God and us when it comes to promises. And so my favorite humorist of all time, Mark Twain, steps in and says this. I could never keep a promise. I don't blame myself for this weakness because the fault must lie in my physical organization. He's also one of my favorite atheists. It is likely that such a very liberal amount of space was given to the organ which enables me to make promises that the organ which should enable me to keep them was crowded out. I grieve not, however, I like no halfway things. I'd rather have one faculty nobly developed than two faculties mere ordinary capacity, right? We can laugh at that, but we know it to be true, right? The, the faculty that helps us make promises can't hold a candle, right? Or can't, it completely eclipses any faculty to actually keep those promises, in fact, when we make promises, we have no idea if we'll be able to keep them because we don't know if we're about to take our last breath. The idea of a promise for a finite person is kind of an absurd idea. And yet, these are things that we value over almost anything else. It's a transcultural value, promises, that stretches across all time and and history. All our relationships rely on promises. Our economies rely on promises. Our marriages rely on promises. Promises, according to ethical experts, have two components, two main components in a promise the context of the promise and the content of the promise. Context and content. So take, for instance, marriage. The context of a marriage is a man and a woman, and the church and the state, just as an example. There are more, there's more things involved in that context. But the content of the marriage is the families, the resources, the talents of those individuals as they enter into that promise. There's a promise made in an educational relationship, between a uh, potentially a student and a teacher in a school. That's the context. The student, the teacher, the school, and whatever else uh, ma- makes up that relationship. The content of that promise, however, is the information that's transferred, the accountability that is offered, the grades that are conferred, the credentials that come out of it. The promise of vocation has a context, right? The, the economy in which you work the employer whom you work for, yourself as the employee. And then there's the content of that. The, the talent you offer and the money that you receive or, uh, or the, whatever you receive in exchange for that talent. The goods and services exchanged and the payment. So there's a context and a content for every promise. Now, as God enters into this narrative with Joshua, he's reminding Joshua, listen, my promise has context and content. The context is me, Yahweh, you, Israel, all the surrounding nations, and the land. There are other items that we ought to include in that. But for our purposes today, that's the context of God's promise. The content of the promise will be the land that belongs to Israel, the offspring that they will have there, the identity that they will enter into as they walk in this promise. And the same ethicists who have set up this kind of um, uh, way of looking at promises. Say that the highest form of a promise is also the, the one that we're least able to keep. The highest form of a promise is what they call a content independent promise. A promise that is made regardless of what one of the parties will offer back in return. A content independent promise means that you will do a thing no matter what. And ethicists look at this as a foolhardy exercise. They say no one engages uh, willfully or wisely in content independent independent promises. However, God's relationship with Israel is 100% a content independent promise. Because Israel has nothing to offer this God in return. Joshua has nothing to offer this God in return. Joshua needed to know that there was a promise involved in this exercise. As God recites for Joshua the borders of the land he was about to enter, we realize that the square mileage of the land promise was bigger than the state of Texas. Over 300,000 square miles. From the Nile, uh, or from, yeah, from the Nile to the Euphrates, from the Red Sea, all the way to Syria, from the southern tip of Israel, all the way up to the border of Syria. It's the biggest content independent promise in history <laughs> made by this God. And this is why Joshua needed a promise. If this was about Joshua's courage and boldness, it would be an impossible task. No, no reason for him to even take a step from where he was because this is a story about God's faithfulness to his promise, not Joshua's boldness and courage. That's the first thing we need to recognise if we're going to understand this passage. This is a story about God's faithful promises, not our boldness and courage. The second thing we got to recognise is that this is a story of a God of order. The promise comes with organization and order. As I, oftentimes, I think about Joshua and the task he was given, I think about my role as, as a father. Um, and I remember the days of taking uh, my four kids to amusement parks, which I hate with a deep abiding passion. Don't ask me to go to amusement parks. I hate them. However, I'd often have to make these promises, right? Yes, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go. And I would always put it off. And so finally, we end up at the amusement park. Um, and I, and I get there, and we're about to get out of the car, and I think to myself, and I think Joshua is probably thinking to himself, how am I gonna keep everybody from dying today? Because I can't imagine a least safe, meaningful experience uh, than an amusement park. Uh, and you, you start imagining all the different ways that you know, things are gonna fly out of control, they're gonna fight, they're gonna want a snack, I'm not gonna wanna give it to them, they're gonna get grumpy, there's gonna be an argument, somebody's gonna run off. The bathrooms are disgusting. One kid's going to get sick. You know, a ride's going to fly off the track. I don't know. It's a, I am not interested in that situation. And so I'm sitting there with my hands on the wheel going, what am I going to do? And the, the way that Alicia and I always handled this is we'd say, nobody unbuckle their seatbelts. Nobody unbuckle. And all the kids would kind of sit there and we'd turn around in the van or we'd go and we'd open up the door and we'd, we'd poke our heads in and we'd say, now here's how it's going to work today, Right? And then you outline what's, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen at the amusement park. Not like it ever really worked. But you're doing your very best to bring order to a completely chaotic or potentially chaotic situation. Promises are common to build trust. But what brings cohesion and meaning to those promises is some kind of order and some kind of organization. And so as I give my kids the expectations uh, for the day, uh, God gives Joshua his expectations for how he was to behave as he enters the promised land. Joshua needed God's words of order to govern his behavior and his actions. And this is not new in scripture. Probably many of you are already thinking this. Genesis chapter 1. There's a void. Some refer to it as chaos. I'm not sure it was chaos, but it certainly would have been uh, chaos to us in our finitude. God speaks. God speaks order into that chaos. Gives direction to his creation. Again, when God approaches Noah... Right? The the unrighteousness, the the, uh, terrible depravity of mankind on the earth. God speaks to Noah. Tells Noah to build an ark. Gives him order. Gives him directions. God takes Abram and saves him out of this aimless pagan mindset. And God says, take your whole family and go. He gives Abram order through his words. And you know, God approaches Moses. None of these men were reaching out for God. But God gives order. He gives his word to Moses. And Joshua is just the next in a long line. God says to Joshua in verse 7, Be strong and be very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. God gives order to Joshua. He gives him a way in which to walk. Now, it's vitally important that we recognize that this law is not primarily the Ten Commandments. This is the way that Old Testament writers refer to the whole Pentateuch. The whole first five books of the Bible that were referred to as the law. That law consists of histories, prophecies, songs, poems, covenants, and prayers. And God says, keep all those close to you and remember them because that is the way in which you will be successful. By keeping these orders close. It's not just a list of rules, it's an entire mentality of how to view the world and how to interact within it. It's an entire history of how God views the world and how God has interacted with the world. God says to Moses, or God says to Joshua, keep all my words close. Because my words are what bring order to the chaos of your life. So God is a God of promise, but God sends order to give cohesion and traction to his promise as he interacts with us. But thirdly, and I might argue most importantly, he's a God of presence. And so as God instructs Joshua, to take the Israelites uh, down and over the River Jordan, he instructs the ark to go ahead of them. And in their tradition, uh, what was tucked into the ark was this uh, document, the Pentateuch, the law, as they called it. And so as God is instructing Joshua to keep this book of the law close to him, he's recognizing that this book of the law travels with the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant is essentially this box overlaid with gold with these two angels on top of it facing each other and the priests carry it and and tucked into that box is the law of God among some other items. The, The Hebrew for Ark of the Covenant is very simple, right? Aron Barit, right? Which is simply box word. It's the word box, okay? It's the covenant box. It's where all of God's interactions with his people are recorded. And God says, take the word box with you because it's like taking me with you. In verse five, he says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so... I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Have I not commanded you, in verse 9, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times it's repeated that the Lord is with them. This is the consolation of God for people who are called to do difficult things in their lives. Which, if you've lived a little bit, Recognize that's you and that's me. Things were incredibly difficult for Israel and they were about to get more difficult. They had just lost their leader Moses who led them out of slavery and led them through the desert. They were about to face, as far as they were concerned, the most urbanized, the most militarized, the most technological army in that land, the city of Jericho. God had called them to go down, cross the Jordan, take Jericho and the cities behind Jericho, which if you, if you trace it out in the, in the passage, it's about a 40-mile trek that starts at about 3,500 feet above sea level, dips to 1,500 feet below sea level, at the Jordan Valley, and then climbs another 2,000 feet back up in 40 miles with hundreds of thousands of soldiers, people, and provisions, and animals, and the ark leading them all. To face what? This brutal, violent army who would surely kill them all. (laughs) This was not a celebratory moment for Israel, but the consolation of God in this moment is, I will be with you. I will go with you. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened and don't be dismayed. In verse 9, For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Wherever and whatever. Cancer, mental illness, poverty, divorce, lost your job, you're sinning and you're feeling the consequences of that sin. Sin wherever and whatever, you can't shake this God. That's the message that he is giving to them. George Mueller, uh, the 19th century missionary, started an orphanage, uh, claims he never asked for anything for this orphanage. Just started the orphanage and prayed and trusted the Lord. He's writing to another young missionary after his long uh, work. And he says to this young man, Reckon on the Lord then. Look on the Lord and depend on him. Be assured by him. If you walk with him and look to him and expect help from him, he will never fail you. An older brother who has known the Lord 44 years who writes this, says to you for your encouragement that he has never failed him. In the greatest difficulties, right? He has never failed him. In the greatest difficulties, doesn't mean you don't have difficulties. In the greatest difficulties, in the heaviest trials, in the deepest poverty and necessity, he has never failed me. But because I was enabled by his grace to trust him, he has always appeared for me. I delight in speaking well of His name. The Christian walk is not a walk that avoids troubles and trials and poverty and sickness. The Christian walk is a walk that gives you peace and contentment, even though even though you walk through all those things. God was with Joshua and Israel, and this is the core of the unfolding promise of all of Scripture. If you want wholeness, if you want contentment, if you want strength and courage, you have to have God with you. He literally has to dwell with you. And we see ultimately, (laughs) this is unfolded in Jesus. This is why we're Christians. In Matthew chapter 1, 21, what is Mary receives this news that she will bear a son. She will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And remember Jesus and Joshua are the same word. Remember that little tidbit, right? (laughs) All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listen, Jesus (laughs) is the one who is strong and courageous. Jesus is the fulfillment of Joshua. Jesus is the greater promise. Jesus is the greater order. Jesus is the greater presence. Jesus is the word box of God who never leaves us. He is the covenant. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way we are able to be strong and courageous, even in the worst of situations, even while we're failing and sinning, it's by trusting in Christ. John tells us this in 1 John 9. If you're asking yourself, well, how do you do this, right? I get it intellectually, but how do you do this? John says, 1 John first 9, in this the love of God was made manifest. The love of God's presence is with us, right? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him that we might live through him. This is a spiritual discipline to trust Christ in every situation, to recite the promises of God in every situation, to believe that despite our whole world is falling apart, that God is good, that he is present, that he's given us order, and that he is actually making good on his promises in that moment. That's the kind of faith I want to have. That's that's the kind of faith I want you to have, and I want my church to have. Christians aren't Christians because they're bold and courageous. Christians are Christians because Jesus is bold and courageous. So if you recognize the reality of the temporal value even, the secular value of promises and order and presence— just in people and in your relationships. You have to recognize that this didn't just pop out of nowhere. This is not an evolutionary process. This is patterned off of the divine God of creation who values all these things and wants to be your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for your word and how it continually points to Jesus and the hope that we have in him. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of your servants through the generations. We thank you for Joshua uh, and for the, the, the leader that you made him. And we thank you for the words that you spoke to him that we have after these thousands of years and we're able to meditate on them. God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would continue to help us meditate on these words, at least through the rest of today. That we could learn how we might Truly be bold and courageous in the context of the work of Jesus Christ and the victory that he has won. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.